Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attack. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens. This is Bobby Blitz from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windor from Monster Magnet. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Kiske talking. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Stilter. Hey, everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attacks. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Don Jameson from That Metal Show on DH1 Classic. Hey, everybody, this is your big daddy-o, Gene Hoagland. This is Kurt Winstein from Crowbar. Hey, Netherhead from Hexbangos. This is Dolo Passion. Hi, this is Conrad Peace, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hi, yeah, okay, so hey, this is Paul Shortino. How you doing? Formerly of Rough Cut, Quiet Riot, and currently with King Cobra. You're listening to Mars Attack. <laughs> hey, what's up, everyone? This is Mark from Chimera. This is Vinny Apsy from Kill Devil Hill, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Christie from the band Charred Walls of the Damned on Metal Blade Records. And you are listening to Mars Attack. Yeah, this is John Schaefer from Iced Earth, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hi, this is Bruce Kulik, and you're hanging with Mars Attacks. By the way, one of my favorite shows and movies, too. <laughs> Welcome, one and all, to episode 67 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor. And if you listen to episode 66, you'll know that this is, well, in the age of the internet, you're going to be reading what you're listening to beforehand. (laughs) It isn't like in the old days where, you know, there was a weekly radio show or whatever and you were surprised. Well, you probably already know this is part two of the Kiss Revenge special, marking the 20th anniversary of the release of Kiss, Kiss's Revenge, I should say. If you listen to the first part, 
episode 66 with Mitch LaFon of Pure Gain Audio, formerly of Brave Words, you'll know that the first half was me asking him about, you know, the five-part episode or five-part interview that he did regarding the album for Brave Words earlier in 2012. So the second part is basically me responding to him or mentioning, you know, things that stood out with each of the parts. So um, when I listened back and I edited the interview, I laughed at a lot of the stuff uh, because, again, I think we're two music-loving goofs here (laughs) just talking about albums that we absolutely love. Um, Revenge is a very important album for Kiss. It brought a lot of people back into the fold and after... You know, an album like Crazy Nights that, at least for me personally, was the first album. I would actually have to say that the combination of Crazy Nights and the debacle that Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits was, especially with how they dismantled songs like I Love It Loud and songs like You Make Me Rock Hard and um, Let's Put the X in Sex and stuff like that. The band was off course. Um, Hot in the Shade sort of brought me back. I mean, not sort of. It did bring me back. You know, it actually made me go out and buy that album again. It wasn't, you know, this Bon Jovi stuff that, you know, I didn't buy into to begin with, you know. I just was never a fan of that stuff. And seeing one of your favorite bands, if not your favorite band, uh, turn to that was really disappointing for me. But, you know... It's their band, and it's what they want to do, ultimately. So, um, Revenge brought me back. And I remember listening to WNEW in New York. Ian O'Malley was the DJ, and he premiered two songs that night. He premiered the Lynch Mob song, Tangled in the Web, which I absolutely love to this day. And he premiered Unholy off of Kiss's Revenge, and I was blown away. I was like, what the hell is this? Finally, they're back. This is what I've been waiting for for the longest time. And I have to say that earlier this year, you know, I um, I revisited a lot of the Kiss albums. I actually have to say that I revisited um, at one point or another every album that they've released. Some albums, you know, I think... Listening to them in hindsight are probably better than what I felt that they were when they first came out or when I first started listening to the album. Uh, I think that there are certain albums that are gems that are overlooked. An album like Dynasty is panned merely because I was made for Loving You is on there, which is an automatic skip for me. Uh, But every other track off of that album is pretty good in my opinion. The Ace Freely material off of that is ridiculous and Dirty Living the track with Peter Chris um is one of my favorite Peter tracks. So go figure. Uh in any event there are so many albums that are okay. They've got some one or two great tracks, a bunch of okay tracks, and then a bunch of stinkers on there. Um and I don't think it's the fault of maybe so much you know, I don't think Bruce Kulick is at fault. I don't think Eric Carr is at fault. 
Um, Gene Simmons wasn't there a lot of the time, and I think Paul Stanley did what he could to get to make the most out of things. And one of the things that you find out reading Mitch LaFond's uh, five-parter is that Hot in the Shade was really no more than a glorified demo. So for everyone that bitches about Carnival of Souls, which I think is absolutely fantastic, Hot in the Shade was, you know, didn't even have a drummer on a lot of tracks. Or it was, you know, Eric Carr copying Eric Singer's parts on demos. Uh, It was Kevin Valentine playing. You know, there were a bunch of different people involved that really weren't part of KISS. So, um... For everyone that pardons that album and gives crap to Carnival of Souls, just realize that Carnival of Souls had the four people that appear on that cover. You know, Paul, Gene, Eric Singer, and Bruce Kulick playing on there. And for better or for worse, you know, uh, I think it was a good follow-up to Revenge. That's just my opinion. Uh, I think Psycho Circus is a horrible follow-up, but that's besides the point. I listen to Psycho Circus again, and there are certain songs off of that that I really do like that maybe I didn't, you know, give credit to uh, in the past. So um, take that for what it's worth, and, um, you know, listen to the albums yourself, and, you know, make your own opinions on whether you like or, or don't like these albums. So, you know, all all I can do as a fan is just to give you my opinion. And, you know, if you agree with it, that's cool. And if you don't, that's cool too. You know, if nothing else, if it makes you go back, check these albums out, uh, or check this album out in this case, you know, that's fine by me. We're all just fans of music just trying to spread the word. You know, that's why I don't understand why, you know, some publicists or labels or whatever, you know, don't make people accessible i mean well i do understand because there are people out there that are really not professional Uh, i don't profess to being professional but i listen to some other people and you know it's it's outrageous it's outrageous to think that you know they're offering something viable and there are some people that are just trying to you know stir things up and you know, I don't know. If I don't enjoy what I'm doing, if if it becomes a chore, then I stop doing this. You know, that's that's just the bottom line. So, uh, anyway, let me tell you about... You know, I feel like uh, Jesse the Body Ventura here. Let me tell you, Gene. Um, anyway, or maybe that was more of a Hulk Hogan. Anyway, <laughs> um, Mars Attacks podcast is part of the Cast Iron Ring. The Cast Iron Ring is in... Alliance, if you will, a network of podcasts that uh, are from all around the globe. You know, I'm here in Spain. You have Wiki Metal down in Brazil. You have Signal to Noise and uh, Iron City Rocks down in the uh, Pittsburgh area. You have uh, Bone Hand Heavy Half Hour, which is up in the Seattle area, if I'm not mistaken. Radioactive Metal, which is down in Florida. You have Focus On Metal, which is up in Massachusetts. Um, or the New England area. I apologize if I'm screwing that up. Uh, and then you have Bob that does um, uh, Shockwave Skull Sessions and uh, Shockwave's HardRadio.com podcast. And I apologize that I don't know where he's located. But, um, yeah, so check Cast Iron Ring out. 
just to give you a quick rundown, you have Focus on Metal 96 with uh, Sound of Thunder. You have Wiki Metal Episode 90 with Rudolf Shanker of Scorpions. You have Shockwave Skull Sessions. Episode 56, Hail to the Producers. Uh, you also have Iron City Rocks, Episode 168 with George Lynch. They're giving a Chiaki... <laughs> <laughs> a run for a run for uh his money with uh, interviewing George Lynch there uh, Chiaki from uh Japanese metal show um if you haven't listened to that definitely uh check that out and uh what else focus on metal episode 95 music discovery 3 focus on metal uh episode 94 and so on and so forth so Check all these great shows out. Uh, also want to give props to Decibel Geek Podcast. Once again, um, you know, they featured my episode or my uh, comments on 9-11. They also featured me a few weeks ago when they did a Kissmas in July. We're in September, but, you know, trying to follow things up. Or was that Kissmas in August? Anyway, props to them. They uh, They made me Geek of the Week. And uh, they gave me, you know, Monopoly money and Prestige, and damn, does that Prestige run, you know, wear out real quickly. So maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just that I'm not meant to have much Prestige, but hey, whatever. Um, Also want to remind you guys to check out our friends over at Talking Metal. Um, I should be getting together with Mark Striegel to do an episode of Talking Metal soon, and I need to have him comment on some albums for the Mars Attacks Classic Albums column. If you're not sure what the Classic Albums column is, it's basically just a category, per se, of podcasts or posts that we have up on the website where we have musicians, we have producers... Um, show hosts, bloggers, so on and so forth, comment on a classic album of the month. I apologize for not putting out a column per month, trying to get back into the rhythm of of things, but, you know, sometimes life sort of trips you up and doesn't allow you to, but we'll do our best. Uh, the last classic albums column to come out was Suicidal Tendencies, uh, self-titled debut, uh, Pantera's Far Beyond Driven came out before that, and uh, we actually have Rex Brown, formerly of Pantera, that comments on the podcast version of that. Uh, he's out there with Kill Devil Hill. We did Shout at the Devil by Motley Crue before that, and uh, just go to MarsAttacksRadio.com. There is a column on the right-hand side where... Uh, you can click on right there under Categories, Classic Albums Column, and it'll take you to not only all of the Classic Albums Columns, but it'll take you to an index, which is all the way at the bottom of the page, which allows you to see everyone who's involved. And if you agree with them or not, you can check you know, their bands out or their sites out, click on links to find out exactly who they are, and um, you know, drop them a line. Or check out you know, um, check out their music, see if you dig it or not. Uh, Another thing that we're going to be doing from time to time is a recipe. I started doing it for the sister site, Fusion Sonic, and I started doing it because, you know, here in Spain, you have a lot of pretend, you know, American food. You know, you think that a fried hamburger, which isn't even, you know, cow meat, 
which most times is pig meat, as a matter of fact, passes as a hamburger, and it just just doesn't do it, <laughs> you know, in my opinion. So um, I've started to put videos together with recipes. The first thing was uh, uh, nachos americanos, nachos americanos, as I say in Spanish. Um, and I pretty much describe what you need, how long, you know, you need to prepare the recipe, you know, uh, things of that nature, and check that out, you know. Um, just some easy recipes, you know, I'm not going to, um, say that, you know, I'm just some out of whack, you know, expert. I'm not like Bruce Moore, who, uh, I recently received his book, uh, for those about to cook. Uh, he's got a really cool podcast as well. Uh, check that out. Uh, it's called Brutally Delicious. And, um... You know, I'm nowhere near that. They're just simple recipes. There should be one coming up shortly uh, towards the end of this month. And uh, I actually also have to thank the guys from Blue Effects. Uh, they worked with me on getting me some software that's called Titler Pro. They gave me a nice discount um, for Titler Pro, and that'll help make things a little nicer with these recipes and if we do any type of video interviews in the future. So, um, that is that. Um, also remember to go to the right-hand side of MarsAttacksRadio.com and check out links to our Facebook, Twitter, and all that good stuff. If you want to leave us any type of feedback, you can also do so by sending an email to input at marsattacksradio.com. We love receiving your input, your feedback, and um, we may start featuring listener input shortly. Um, Remember that you can download or stream these episodes from marsattacksradio.com, or you can subscribe via iTunes, have it automatically download to your um, smart device, your your iPhone, your iPad, or uh, directly to your computer. And um, that is pretty much it for now. Let's get into the first track that kicked Revenge off. This is Unholy, and after that we'll get into the comments by Mitch LaFon from Pure Gain Audio. I should say uh, the discussion that Mitch LaFon and I had. So there you go. Buggle up, listen to Unholy, and we'll be back after after the music, the interview, more music. You know the routine. So here we go, Unholy.
So, um, I actually wrote uh, some points down regarding the uh, the five interviews, and th- this is what really stood out to me. And um, get your take on on these various things that I wrote down. Uh, first of all, I want to mention that no matter how big of a Kiss fan I've always thought that I was, there's always someone out there that knows more. And in this case, it's obvious that um, you know a hell of a lot more than I do regarding the band. Well, perhaps. Well, in this case, at least Revenge. And and, and I did find out a whole bunch of interesting things in the five-parters. And, you know, four of the interviews that were presented were in full. And... Well, in fact, that's not true. Three of them were in full. Bruce Kulick, there was about 20 minutes that got wiped out because of a technical glitch. And, and he had told me a whole bunch of stuff about Vinnie Vincent and about... And, and I feel really bad that it got wiped out. And the Eric Singer was a four-hour interview. And after I typed out the first hour and 20 minutes, I said, you know what? <laughs> I think I think the fans have enough. And I'm sure if I went through the the whole four hours... There's a few extra tidbits that might have added to the story, but I said, you know what? Eh, it's not going to make a huge difference. And there was also a lot of stuff that he kept saying, oh, that's off the record. You can't add that. That's off the record. You can't add that. So, Right. Okay. Uh, my second point here is um, Kiss has done their damnedest to bury every non-makeup album that's come out. Uh, even this one, which, as we talked about previously, reeled a lot of fans back into into Kiss. Yeah, I mean, Revenge, Revenge was the one, and I and I've told Eric Singer this story personally about twenty times. I'm sure he's sick and tired of hearing about it. <laughs> when I when Kiss came out of the Creatures of the Night era, you know, I had bought The Elder and had been exceptionally disappointed, and this was after Unmasked. And Creatures of the Night gave me a whole kind of enthusiasm. And then, of course, it was announced that not only had Peter left, Ace had now left. And so I sort of fell into an abyss. Music changed. Huey Lewis came in. The Knack came in. All these other bands. And so I sort of glommed to that stuff. And Mm -hmm. out of loyalty, I bought the Lick It Up album because I walked into a record store and I saw Kiss Without Makeup. And I said, well, i got to own this. And then the Asylum record, I said... Oh, you know, they've been good to me. I might as well just pay the seven ninety nine and pick it up. <laughs> thing for Crazy Nights, and I did the same thing for Hot in the Shade. But Revenge was different. I was in my living room watching much music, you know, the Canadian music channel. Right. The song Unholy came on, and I I happened to grab it about one-third of the way in. Didn't know who uh, who the band was. And I kept seeing this blonde drummer, and I saw this demonic-looking bass player with a goatee. And then I saw Paul Stanley, and I went, wait a minute. <laughs> and I went, hey, I know him. And But then, you know, kept flashing back to Gene and Eric, and I didn't have I had no idea who they were. And I loved the song. And I was I sat by much music for the next week going, whoa, play that again, play that again. <laughs> He did, and I saw Kiss Unholy, and I went, oh. And of course, this was before there was internet and all this. And so right. I went to the local record store, and I said, I want Kiss Unholy. And they said, we don't have that. Yeah. And of course, 
this was the pre-release because back in the day they used to release singles a month before the the release date, two months before. So right. I had to wait patiently for like six weeks for the album to finally come out, and it had been the first time since Dynasty that I was sitting by the the door of a record store going, "All right, today's the day. Come on, come on, open the door, open the door. I'm coming in." <laughs> and I put the album on, and it was. It was heaven. It was cohesive. The first song to the last song spoke to me. There was something going on. They were well written. They were hard. They were heavy. And then I saw the tour and I saw the drummer is the best drummer Kiss has ever had. Mm -hmm. And that was it. You know, I was back in. And after that, I cared again. And, you know, then they talked about the South American tour in, 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 in Brazil. And then they talked about uh, doing the unplug thing and the kiss convention tour and, you know, reasonably quickly, all of a sudden the reunion tour and all of a sudden the nineties became my kiss rebirth. And there were a lot of fans coming out of the, you know, the Bon Jovi Def Leppard eighties and stuff who didn't like kiss because, you know, if you're listening to slippery when wet compared to crazy nights, you're probably going to pick, pick slippery. Right fans jumped on revenge and it was this new hard rock album and they're like huh who is this kiss band and so it was a whole new generation and now you go to a show and all they play is shout it out loud and you go come on <laughs> what is that right and it's disrespectful i think i don't know maybe disrespectful is a proper word but th there's a whole generation of fans that know kiss from 1987 onward and all the, the before stuff, they have no clue what it's about. And yeah. they get completely left out in the cold when they go to a show because they're playing the songs that basically run from 1973 to 1978. They cover five years of the band and the other 30 years or 32 years, they just don't account for them anymore. And, and yeah. it's shameful. They don't exist. <laughs> it makes no sense. I mean, listen, you know, Come On and Love Me is a great song, but so was I want. Um, uh, uh, what's the one? I, sorry, I have a Def Leppard in my head all of a sudden. I was going to say I want to touch you, but that's Def Leppard. Um, I just want it is the one I'm trying to say. Right. And um, I don't know. It, it's time. It's time to put songs like Domino and, and uh, Spit and every time I look at you in the set list. Right. I, I agree with you. I think it is the, the right time, especially being the, the 20th anniversary. And uh, it, it is definitely a, a damn shame that uh, that they do everything possible just to uh, make as if none of those years or songs existed. And, and also as though none of the fans existed, because we just said it. A lot of fans found out about Kiss around 1987 or 1988. I mean, there's, there's a lot of generations of Kiss, and you can tell by going to a show. If you went to a show and it was just an audience of 50-year-olds, you'd go, oh, okay, it's one generation. But when you go to a Kiss show, you've got 50-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds, and all those kids and all those young people aren't just fans because dad was a fan. A lot of them are there because they discovered the band themselves. And they discovered the band in an era when there was no makeup, 
and, and they're being completely left out in the cold. And, you know, you look at a band like Metallica, Bon Jovi, Bruce Springsteen, who do shows and change five, six, ten songs a night. And you look at Kiss's catalog, which is what, 21 studio albums, 22 studio albums? And they're playing, right. they're playing the songs from three albums. How does that make sense? How do you ignore 18, song, 18 albums worth of material? Right. It it makes no sense, and and one thing I just realized with you uh, mentioning all this, um, you have to figure that the MTV generation, the Much Music generation, came on when Kiss had no makeup on. So there could be an argument um, that, or or you could argue that the fans that you know kept them afloat in the '80s actually did more to help you know keep their popularity alive than. You know what they did in the seventies. Listen, by nineteen eighty-two, uh, you look at the Creatures of the Night tour sales. The band was dead, buried, forgotten. Bye-bye. And then a little thing called MTV started playing a video called "Lick It Up." Yep. And up, oh, suddenly Kiss is on tour. Suddenly Kiss has Bon Jovi opening up for them somewhere in Europe. Suddenly, Accept is opening up for them on a North American tour. Suddenly, Kiss is Kiss again. They're on yeah. again. And that had a lot to do with the fact that MTV had no content. They played the same videos a hundred times a day. And Kiss Lick It Up happened to be one of those videos. And with, yeah. you know, without a Kiss would be a band that we would be romanticizing and think, Remember in the seventies, there was this band Kiss. They would have been uh, just like a band that's always been compared to them, uh, the band Angel, that uh, never, you know, made it out of the seventies with their popularity. Absolutely, and they would have been completely forgotten. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so, uh, revenge. You you read the five parts. I hope you found them interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think each one of these parts had you know, good things in there. The the Tommy bit obviously was short, but it was cool to um to read that he actually sung on Revenge, something that, you know, since they decide to uh camouflage everything that actually happens in the studio, or at least for the most part, um, you know, being the naive um late teen or early twenties um, years that I was in, uh, when, when the album came out, you know, I didn't realize that anyone outside of Gene, Paul, Bruce, and Eric Singer had sung on the album. So, you know, who knew? <laughs> and there was also Jamie St. James who did some backing vocals. And, you know, if, to me, if Tommy is in there doing backing vocals, I wouldn't be surprised if there's something that he played on you know, considering that uh, Domino was a song that his band had done under a different name, uh, I'm hmm. surprised if he played a little bit of guitar on there. He's admitted freely that he's played guitar on two tracks on Hot in the Shade, which, of course, is before Revenge. So, right. you know, Tommy, Tommy's probably on a few more Kiss albums than, than we might suspect. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a good point. You know, including the whole of Psycho Circus. Right. And um, 
actually, that's one of my next points here. Uh, we discussed the last time that uh, Eric had divulged at a uh, KISS convention years ago that Kevin Valentine had played on all of Psycho Circus, for the, or at least for the most part. Um, I was always under the impression that the original four had played on the title track and Into the Void, but he mentions during, uh, during the interview he did with you that, uh, in fact, the original four only played on um, Into the Void. Yeah, yeah that, that, that too was shocking. I, I understood. You see, I didn't think they had played on Psycho Circus. I had understood that um, he, they had played on You Wanted the Best, You Got the Best, or whatever the name of that song is. Right. Mm-hmm. And Into the Void. And it turns out, not true. Kevin Valentine's the hero on the whole thing. Very interesting, you know. Yeah. And um you know there's there's one video that I that I've seen once that I should show you if I could find it again. Um you know when Kiss ran off and did the uh, symphony in Australia. Right. Um somebody had leaked online this rehearsal footage and the funny thing is is uh, they decided to play the song Psycho Circus. And the drums start, and you hear the drums booming through on this video. And then suddenly you see Peter Chris bend down to tie his shoe, and the drums are still going. <laughs> and I'm thinking, mother, he, he's playing to a track during the show. He can't yeah. play this song live, or he just can't play this song. And so... Uh, that was my first reveal that that Peter had not played on the title track, and we're talking what two thousand three, two thousand four, right? Um, uh, it, I'm just wondering also if he had done that just for rehearsal, and if it was he was playing to a track just to better his rehearsal, or if the actual Psycho Circus tour and any time that song was performed, did they flick a switch and Peter just mimed along, right? It's quite possible. Wouldn't be the first band to do it. Nope. And it wouldn't be the first time Kiss does it. <laughs> uh, the other interesting thing with Kevin Valentine is actually something that um, you just mentioned with Tommy. Um, up until I read this, and I believe something else that maybe you had brought to light in another interview, I didn't realize how much Hot in the Shade was actually done by outside members um there there's a book i believe that i've read by greg prado called the eric car story and he mentions or one of the people that were interviewed for the book mentioned something to the effect of hot in the shade being an over glorified demo so seeing what kevin valentine mentioned here how his playing ended up on the uh, on the album and and then later on Eric Singer, um, you had asked him if he was on that album as well. You know, makes me think that that was you know just a Gene and Paul demo that they needed to deliver an album and just did what they could to get all the pieces in place just to get it out there. Yeah, you know, I I I knew the the story before about Hot in the Shade, and so I, I sort of through those questions out knowing what the answers would already be but for you know all accounts hot in the shade were a bunch of um demos that had been lying around uh eric carr lived in new york 
or on the East Coast, and the band had uh, had moved to L.A. by then. And most of the demos, I mean, most of the stuff Gene did is just Gene and, like, Bruce and whoever. And Paul had gone into the studio with his, you know, touring drummer, Eric Singer, and had laid down these demos. And then when it was time to release the album, Eric Carr came in and played over the Eric Singer tracks. So he's basically playing what Eric Singer played. But like Kevin Valentine points out, when you build a house, it's sometimes hard to rip out the foundation. And so Eric Singer, that is, has often felt that a lot of his drumming is on there or that Eric copied him so darn well that it's hard to tell. But yeah, I mean, apparently there was no hot in the shade recording sessions. There was just some demos. There was some political pressure from the record company to get material out. And boom, suddenly we have an album. And, you know, the other funny thing about that album is that most of the songs don't feature Gene on bass. Most of the songs are either Paul playing bass, Bruce playing bass, or some other dudes playing bass. Right. You know, it's when you look back at the history of Kiss, there's a lot of Kiss albums that have nothing to do with the members of the band. Right. Uh, you know, even Asylum that had Mark St. John come in features four tracks with Bruce Kulick playing it. Right. Yeah, and and that's interesting because uh, the one thing that I noticed with Revenge when I first bought it was that it was the first album in, what, 20 years at that point that featured both Gene and Paul singing backing vocals on the same tracks. Right where for the longest time you either had one or the other. As you mentioned, you know, you had the one guy's team or the other guy's team working on a track, and that was it. You'd never hear a mix of the two of them singing. Exactly, and a lot of that had to do with uh, Paul Stanley, who had been a little dis- uh, disenfranchised with Kiss through the 80s. He had off- he's often said that Gene was absent. Gene was off in Hollywood making movies. And I think by 92... Because, you know, Hot in the Shade didn't do as well as as well as they expected. They had done the track with Bob Ezrin for the Bill and Ted movie. And both, I think, Bob and Paul said, listen, if we're going to make a Kiss album, we need Kiss. We don't need right. of other people. And that's how they did it. And, you, you know, you got to really give Paul Stanley a lot of credit for the survival of Kiss because... His vision has always remained very pure as to what Kiss is supposed to be. And Gene has been, well, there's Gene movie star, there's Gene record executive, there's Gene. <laughs> you know, Paul's never done that. Paul yeah. is the front man of Kiss, period. End of story. And um, yeah, it, it was great to finally get them back. And it, it shows that when you get the guys working together, they make better music. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you could just see that uh, from everything that they released after that. I mean, if if you really look at it uh, between Revenge and Sonic Boom, I, me personally, I would think Carnival of Souls is better than the other two albums that came out after. Definitely better than Psycho Circus, which is easily one of the worst albums they've put out. 
No, Cycle and, is a good track. I like, I like that track, mind you. The, the, tr the track kicks ass, and I mean, there are a few tracks on there that are really good, but there's just so much filler on there. Oh, 100%. And there's also no conviction to the songs. They, they're not delivered as if we mean them. They're sort of like, yeah. I hate the song. They, they 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 remind me a lot of um of Ozzy Osbourne's career post uh I don't know uh No More Tears or even Osmosis where there's just exactly what you just said there's no feeling or emphasis or anything believable behind the tracks it just all seems very homogenized and bland yeah oh absolutely and um you look at the albums where Gene and Paul really put their heads together, and we're talking, you know, the first uh, four or five albums up until Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over, even Love Gun, all classic albums. You look in the 80s, you've got Creatures of the Night and Lick It Up, where they work together, great albums. Mm -hmm. Then you look at the other stuff in the 80s, mostly Paul, meh. So so albums, and that's not to, to to take a shot at Paul, but no. Then you get <laughs> brilliant again. You get to Sonic Boom. Okay, maybe some people won't say it's brilliant, but it's certainly a lot better than what anybody could have expected, given yeah. the record. From yeah, I've I, I've always said about Sonic Boom that I thought it was a good album if it was a starting block for what was to come. Right. Well, and it probably is a starting block for what's to come because the first album where you had these four guys together, because remember, Psycho Circus might have had Tommy Thayer, but it did not have Eric Singer. And it's the first time that they made an album as this band. And so, you know, now we got Monster coming out. And from the people I've spoken to, it's a kick-ass album, so you know maybe this is the start of something new. Maybe this is Kiss Phase Two or Phase. Wow, God, how many phases have Kiss gone through by? <laughs> no. This would probably be what, like a Phase Four? <laughs> Nine, when you think about it. I mean, what do we? We got post Peter, post Ace, <laughs> post Mark, well, post Bru, uh, <laughs> post Vinny. Yeah, I think if you look at classic lineups, you got to say the original four, then I don't know what. You would probably have to jump from there to the Vinny lineup just because Ace and Eric Carr were on, what, one album together only, The Elder? <laughs> um, then you've got the Bruce Kulick era, and then you've got this era. So it's like four classic lineups. Well, five if you count... Uh, the Bruce and Eric Singer for Revenge and Carnival of Souls, actually. Sure. And Carnival of Souls. You know, Carnival of Souls is a very difficult album to take sometimes. Sometimes it's brilliant, and sometimes it's just miserable to listen to. It's it's one of those where you really need to be in the mood for something different. Yeah. You know. It's got... I mean, I don't think that there's really a weak song on the album, but it's exactly what you said. Um, if if you take that album in small doses and you use it to say put a greatest hits uh type deal together, you know, in your uh iTunes or whatever, yeah, you know those tracks like Master and Slave and Jungle and a few others really kick ass. But if you listen to that entire album through, by the time you get to um, by the time you get to like the fifth to last song, you're, you're looking for, 
you know, revenge or creatures of the night or something to sort of write the ship again. So one time in my iTunes, what I did is I threw in creatures of the night, revenge and carnival of souls. And what I did is I put the first song of creatures, the first song, you know, and then I spaced them out the second song, you know, and when you play it like that, it sounds like one giant metal album. And it actually sounds good because the creature song work well into the revenge songs and it it takes the edge off of the Carnival of Souls songs. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I wanted to that out. It's actually it's actually a good way to listen to those three albums. I just may have to try that. It works. Tell you, it works. Another interesting thing was the revelation that um, Eric Singer didn't play on Take It Off, which is one of my favorite tracks off of Revenge. I'd love to hear the original demo with Eric and see how different it might be from Kevin Valentine's version, since what I've heard from bootlegs of that track live, he plays it pretty much uh, in the same manner as Kevin anyway. Yeah, and Kevin, by the way, said very clearly that he he didn't do anything original. He copied what Eric Singer did. It's just that Bob Ezrin wasn't entirely satisfied with the sound that he had gotten from Eric. Not necessarily Eric's playing, but just the drum sound. And because Eric had to run off for the Alice Cooper tour, he didn't get a chance to recut his track. So, you know, I, I think Eric and Kevin are similar drummers. And I, I don't think what Eric Singer did necessarily would be bad or off-putting, just probably right. not sonically where it needed to be because of maybe sure. it was a mic problem. Who knows? But uh, yeah, it would be interesting to hear Eric on the original studio version. And But you know, if you listen to um, uh, Kiss Alive 3 and, and some of the other ones, you get a chance to hear him play it. So yeah, you make up for it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, another interesting thing with Kevin Valentine is Cinderella's just about as shady as Kisses when it comes to uh, who's recording their albums. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> Cinderella is the first album. Um, they put Fred Curry's picture on the album cover, but it wasn't him who played on the album. The second album, they didn't like what Fred Curry did, so they brought in... Um, Oh, uh, what's the name of the drummer who passed away? Um, Cozy Powell. And then by the third album, they bring in Kevin Valentine. So it's 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 funny to note that the only time you get to hear Fred Curry of Cinderella in Cinderella is when they play live. Which, by the way, if you didn't know, is the same thing with Bon Jovi and Alec John Such. If you look at the credits of all Bon Jovi albums, Yui McDonald is mentioned in the first or second in the thank yous in every album. The reason being, he was playing bass on the albums. <laughs> Which, in the end, shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone when they when they replaced Alex. So no, oh, and they did it so quickly. And and you know, if you ever listened to uh, John speak about Alec in a negative way, he kept saying he can't play live. He can't play live. Never once did they say anything about the studio because guess what? He wasn't playing in the studio, so there was nothing. <laughs> that's uh, that, that's an interesting point, and I mean, especially given how long he was in the band and how much money they made, and and I'm assuming uh, he he got a decent chunk out of it, uh, one way or another. Because I mean, 
honestly, he's kept quiet all these years. That's exactly it. Had there been a tell-all book the week after, you would have said, oh, man, he got screwed. <laughs> yep. But anything, he left in, what, 91 or 92? The fact that he hasn't said anything in 20 years makes me think that he got a nice chunk of change, a little hush money, if you want to call it. Yeah. And uh, off into the sunset, he went. And and he probably gets some sort of kickback from, you know, those albums. Probably gets a small percentage, even though he didn't actually play on them. So I'm sure he's he's set for life with those royalties. I mean, they listen, I have no knowledge of how much he got paid, obviously. But uh, right. he said to me, he got $100 million. I'd say, yeah, okay, I can believe it. Because he's really been extra quiet. I mean... <laughs> appeared on Oprah. He's not been on the Howard Stern show. He's not been in People magazine. I mean, he's been off the radar. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The Kevin Valentine teaching Peter his part, something that you sort of touched on there, but I mean, that wasn't as surprising because I obviously knew that Tommy had had to do the same thing for Ace. Um, but it's you know, similar to what he says in the uh, in the interview. How the hell could he sit there and have to show Peter how to play Love Gun, for God's sakes? You know, he wrote the part. He played on the album. He played that song live how many times? <laughs> and not to mention that the intro to Love Gun is a little bit like the three chords of Smoke on the Water. I mean, any beginner can go, bum, 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 bum. You know I mean, <laughs> this is not the hardest thing in the world, you know? Well, not not even that. I mean, if you listen to the Alive 2 version, and if you're a fan of Kiss and you see, for example, Anthrax live, Charlie Benante adds that ending, that Love Gun ending, to almost every song that Anthrax does live. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so I mean, the, the, that track live in itself off of Alive 2 is legendary as well. And he didn't know how to play any of that? Come on, you know? And and he's going to write a tell-all book now. If he didn't remember how to play his parts, what the hell is he going to remember about what actually took place? Yeah, and especially, you know, as a drummer and as a guitarist, you, you do get into that muscle memory where you might not be able to write down, you know, with a pen what you're playing, but once you get that instrument in your hands, it's like riding a bike and it sort of comes back. It might be a little rusty, it might be a little off the beat. Right. 95% of it. And to have to be taught how to play that, ridiculous. I mean, completely ridiculous. But it does explain why the reunion tour set lists and stuff were very stale. Because yeah. it's like, listen, we taught them 15 songs. Don't ask for more. Huh? Come on. <laughs> we, got, we can't teach. <laughs> but, you know, listen... And, you know, I was going to buy the Peter Chris book, but I've now decided not to buy it. And I have the H. Fraley book, and I've never read it because it, just, it occurred to me after I got it that he was an alcoholic and a drunk and that he has an agenda against Gene and Paul. So how faithful could any of what he's telling me, you know, be? So I, yeah. I just sort of solved it. Yeah, you know, after all the conversations that I've had with you regarding that, it's dissuaded me um, of getting the, the Peter book just because of that. I mean, if if you need someone as a ghostwriter, you know, and especially the um, with the Ace book, 
his ghostwriter is the same guy that did the Dave Mustaine book. And I've talked to people off the record regarding some of the tidbits, uh, some of the juicier tidbits on the Mustaine book, and not one of them has has said that you know what actually took place was even remotely close to what him and his ghostwriter put together. So go figure. So yeah, exactly. Dave has a tendency to rewrite history. Yeah. Um, the other interesting thing, this is now getting on to the Dick Wagner portion. How does Dick Wagner end up on a track that Ace Freely wrote? <laughs> on, uh, every time I look at you? No, on, um, on Destroyer, on Flaming Youth. Yeah, uh, real simple. Um, Ace was a drunk and booked a studio and says, you know, five o'clock we're recording and Ace would just not show up. And so Bob Bezman would say, well... I know Steve Hunter and I know Dick Wagner. They're my go-to guys. And he'd phone them up and say, come on down. And off they'd go. I mean, you know, it's legendary that Bob Ezrin had absolutely no love for Ace Fraley. Bob Ezrin is a master craftsman. He deals with serious musicians and serious people. And the lunacy of Peter Chris or the lack of talent of Peter Chris and the the work ethic or the lack of work ethic for Ace didn't fall into his wheelhouse. And so he said, out you go. I'll bring in my guys and we'll make an album that Kiss can be proud of. Right. And that's how it ends up going. Yeah, the other thing, um, the other track that you just mentioned every time I look at you was funny because we had gone back and forth on Facebook regarding that. Um, how Bruce had told me that uh, that no one else played guitar on the album but him and uh, him and Paul, and then all of a sudden you mentioned that uh, Dick Wagner had actually played the solo for that, and little by little in the various you know pieces to the um, uh, revenge uh, features that you put out here, um, he cops to it. Bruce cops to it and. Um, it was, it's also interesting how, uh, politically correct, uh, Bruce's towards everything. Um, he could almost run for office, how politically correct he is. <laughs> this is in a position where he needs to be careful. I mean, you know, he doesn't want to burn any bridges. Right. And so to run out and, and say, you know, the house is on fire is probably not the smart thing for him to do. So you got to respect it. And and also, if you look after I did my revenge series, Bruce on his own website chose yeah. to write his own revenge series. And for the first time ever on his website, he said, yeah, it's true. Dick Wagner came in and did it. But, you know, I love Bruce. And what I always find interesting is the second sentence when he says that Dick played on the album, it's always, aha, but I hit that solo note for note during the unplugged recording. Right. It's sort of his way to to say that I, I could have done this too. <laughs> what I found interesting in that story, though, is that he said, uh, I was on vacation. And I'm like, how can you be on vacation when the band is in studio? You're not on tour. You don't show up nine to five. You're on vacation from what? <laughs> I'm assuming that was uh, Gene and Paul sending him on vacation so Dick could come in maybe? 
perhaps because I mean, they they made an album in '89. They went on tour. They they had. I mean, between the recording of Revenge and the last tour, they hadn't done anything. Of, you know, on on vacation from what is what is basically what I was what I was saying is, they they do Hot in the Shade, they do the Hot in the Shade tour, then they do nothing for ninety, they do nothing in ninety one, and then ninety two comes around and they're recording Revenge, and Bruce says, I, I was on vacation, but I, what were you doing for the last two years? <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. It doesn't, but listen, perhaps perhaps the studio sessions were too intense. and But, I mean, they were only like six or seven months long. Anyway, I'm baffled by it. But he's on vacation. Dick Wagner comes in. Okay, I'll, I'll buy it. <laughs> the other interesting thing is Bruce mentioned it in the interview with you, and he mentioned it on his site, that he felt that with this album, he finally impressed Gene and Paul, but I think he also finally impressed the fan base who was waiting, you know, to have someone come along and sort of, you know, wipe the slate clean and finally say, Ace Who, you know? This album finally made people say that. Yeah, and I agree with that. And, and, I don't know if it came through in the interview, but I did ask him the question. I said, throughout the 80s, Bruce Kulick was basically the guy who wasn't ace. Right. Suddenly, after Revenge, he became Bruce Kulick of Kiss. Yep. And, you know, in the if you look back to the 80s, Bruce argues that his rift in Forever is, is you know, his signature rift and very memorable. You know, get that apart, there really wasn't anything, you know, that a signature sound to what Bruce was doing. It was just very well done, competent guitar playing, you know, the muse to Paul Stanley's uh, songs. Yeah. But when you get to Unholy, suddenly you go, aha. <laughs> ah, it's Bruce Kulick. And now he has a signature solo and a signature sound. And, and you know, here's a song that suddenly if Ace Fraley played, you'd go, doesn't sound right. Right. And it took, it took him eight or nine years to get to that point. And I'm glad he finally got to that point. And it was, it was glad. I was glad also that, uh, you know, we now had kiss 2.0. This was no longer, the band that didn't have Ace and the band that didn't have Peter. We actually right. kiss. Yeah, I I agree. Um, the the one thing that really surprised me with Bruce was again he mentioned no one else had played on the album. He specifically told me that uh, if he ever heard Vinnie Vincent say or uh, mention in front of him that. Uh, that he had played in the album, that he would punch Vinnie Vincent in the face. Now, all of a sudden, he's saying that maybe Vinnie played those scratchy parts at the beginning of Unholy. Yeah. Yeah, that also was a great revelation. Um, Vinnie has gone on, you know, has said in the past that he played on Unholy or he played the solos on Unholy and Bruce says, no, no, no. But then he says, 
Well, Vinny maybe played the scratches because I wasn't in the studio when that was done. So you say to yourself, okay, well, if you weren't in the studio when he recorded the scratches, perhaps during that session, he spent an extra couple of hours doing some other stuff and nobody bothered telling you. You know, who knows? But listen, I personally believe that Bruce played on Unholy and I believe that he played on the on the whole album. But you do have, the, you know, a conspiracy theorist who might say, but if he's not in the studio for the scratches, what else was Vinny doing that day? Right. I think the one thing that really plays uh, in Bruce's favor with that is that Vinny had such a distinct style uh, with his playing and uh, a specific sound that he had as well that I think you'd notice it right away. For example, when Gene did that Wendy O. Williams album, you can tell the solo that Vinny played on, regardless whether he was you know, credited for it or not. I mean, it's so obvious. Um, and, and I think with Unholy, for example, th- there aren't enough notes in that solo for it to be Vinny. Vinny would have played, you know, 15,000 more notes in that solo. <laughs> so uh, I, I can easily buy that that's Bruce. You forget one important ingredient or factor in that is that Bob Ezrin is the producer, and if Vinny had played 100 notes, Bob would easily cut out 99 of them and not even bat an eye, or Bob would look at him in the face and say, listen, I'm Bob. You're the guitar guy. You do what I say. And Bob has such a respect from musicians that Vinny might have, just for Bob, toned it down. Could be. You know. that that's the, that's a good point um eric mentioned something regarding uh carnival of souls being uh bruce's baby um why doesn't bruce re-record this album with john karabi and with another singer just put a project together um with someone else that has another distinctive voice and go in and, and recut the album with uh, the proper mix and everything if if the album is his baby, after all, should really represent what he's all about. Well, you know, uh, listen, there, there's certainly uh, legal ramifications to that suggestion. But putting those aside, I don't think Bruce is is at all uh, unhappy with Carnival of Souls. I mean, he's he seems quite thrilled that it came out and he seems quite thrilled with the songs on it. And. And, I'm, and I know he's happy with his um, vocal performance and on uh, I Walk Alone. Right. So I don't think there's any motivation for him to redo it because I think, and again, it's just my opinion, but I think and I believe that he feels that Carnival of Souls is exactly as it should be. Okay. Um, let's see. Um Oh, uh, this is touching upon something that we had discussed in the um, last interview. Uh, Have you had the famous uh, phone call yet to hear, uh, do you want to touch me now? No, I haven't. And I'm I'm still waiting. And in fact, I'm going to have to uh, email Bruce and ask him if he could, uh, 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 you know, patronize me and play that because I've got to hear it. And 
you know, it's funny because when I first asked about the song, I got a story of, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, it kind of exists. And then I got, yeah, it exists, but it's just, you know, a bed track. It's just drums and guitars, no vocals. But if you read what he put on his site, and if you read some of the other things now that people have asked him about it, it sounds to me like the song's done. Yeah. Yeah, except for maybe the chorus. Yeah, or, or cer- certainly a lot more than just a scratch track. I mean, it certainly sounds like you know, a full demos release. And, uh, you know, both uh, Eric and Bruce have said that it's a great rocker, that it's a great track, that it's as good or better than maybe some of the songs that made it on the album. So, so curious. And, and, uh, uh, I don't. I can't remember. Did Bruce mention this in my interview or on his website? He said he didn't understand why the track wasn't included on the box set. So he mentioned that in both, actually. So, so that just that shows to me that the song has to be in a stage of completion, because even on the on a box set, you don't just throw on a scratch track or or you know a bunch of. Uh, random drums with random guitars. There has to be some kind of, you know, cohesiveness, and or where you can at least recognize there's a song with a pattern. Right. Yeah, I agree. Because and especially with that box set, everything that was unreleased that made it onto the box set was exactly what you just described. It was more or less a fully fleshed out idea. It wasn't missing. You know, ninety percent. It wasn't just a, a drum beat with some, you know, uh, nonsense being uh, spouted out by Gene, like all of the you know bootlegs that all of us Kiss fans have. <laughs> so Aerosmith on their box set put out a bunch of sort of instrumental passages that were parts of what were to be songs, but Kiss didn't do that. So if if Bruce is baffled that it wasn't on the box set, then I have to draw my conclusion that we have a full song here and it right. be released at some point. And listen, part of the idea behind the revenge 20th anniversary was hopefully, and listen, this might be a little bit of a fantasy, but to get fans talking about the album, to get the rock community excited about the album, but mostly maybe to get Gene and Paul to say, Hey, maybe we should do a 20th anniversary re-release. I mean, it doesn't look like it's going to happen, but man, if, if they could do that and and throw out some of the, you know, they recorded three shows for a live three. If they could throw in some of the different shows and this unreleased track and and some of the scratch tracks that that exist, maybe Eric's version of "Take It Off," maybe. You know, every time I look at you with the the solos that Bruce did attempt, would be cool. be very cool. Some Ansley Dunsbar could be thrown in there as well. Yeah, would that be cool? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And drummer. And now that you mentioned that they recorded multiple shows for a live three, um, I actually have a special that they released on the radio. And I don't remember if it was to promote a live three coming out or one of the VHSs back then. But I remember they kicked it off with Love Gun. And the version of Love Gun that's on this special is completely different to what made it on a live three. Oh, I'd love to hear that. 
Yeah, I have it on cassette somewhere. If I can dig that up, I'll definitely um, uh, convert it over to MP3 for you. That sounds good. Yeah, so, you know, listen, it's, uh, Revenge Revenge is certainly an album that 20 years on um, still sounds good. It's still enjoyable to listen to. And the bottom line is that Kiss did not ex- ignore the fan base that, that fell in love with that album us older folks and the younger fans because Domino was was a big single for them. Uh, Unholy certainly was a big song for the band. Um, you know, and, and you've got you've got three fourths. I mean when you think about it, you've got three fourths of that lineup in the current band, and yet they're playing songs that were done by a band that's now fifty percent. Right. <laughs> so uh, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it's it's baffling. Well, here here's an idea for you. Uh, they're doing the second annual Kiss Cruise. Instead of playing the same set list night after night, why don't they do what all these other bands are doing? I just saw Metallica in Madrid. They did the Black Album in its entirety. Why not do one night where they take the makeup off and do an album like Revenge in its entirety and throw... If they want to do some of the hits, do that at the end. Well, the answer to that is because they're too busy making $4,000 books. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the disappointing thing as a fan is that there's all these possibilities to further the music and do something cool via the music. Yeah. And they choose to make $4,000 books instead. And you're like, oh, come on. And, and, you know, and the Kiss Cruise, by the way, uh, there's no reason, for example, why they couldn't invite Bruce Kulick in. And, you know, they can do an acoustic set with the five guys or they can do a special half set with Bruce and, and, and Tommy can sit out. Or, you know, they could even have Ace Fraley come on and just be on the boat and not even be part of Kiss. He can just do his own solo stuff. But, I mean... There's so many potential uh, for them to do more. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, with iTunes now, with uh, direct downloads from from band websites, the band could sit down, not too expensive, with a few mics, do um, an acoustic show or a live recording of uh, 80s era Kiss with none of the old stuff, throw it up on iTunes, charge 10 bucks for it, and they'd, they'd make a killing. And yeah, so, wow, it was so great to hear, you know, uh, I Walk Alone sung by Tommy. I mean, you know, just stuff like that could be could be interesting. Right. I agree. I agree 100 percent. I mean, we've been hearing for years um, how they had recorded. I don't know how many shows uh, this was before, I guess. Uh, no, this is when they originally put out the first VHS with Exposed. They mentioned how they had recorded every single show from the 70s all the way up to the 80s. Finally, they put Kissology out, what, uh, five, six years ago? So you start to think, wow, we're finally going to start to see a lot of these different shows, a lot of these different tours. And they pretty much put out what we had been seeing in the bootleg market for years. I mean, there was really nothing that special or that extravagant that 
you know, we we really hadn't seen in the past. Yeah, and that's where it could be interesting for a next Kissology is to record a portion, even a one-hour portion of the of, of Kissology four, for example, of something that they did just for the box set, something that you can't have seen on a bootleg market. Right, that would be very interesting. And you know, the music business changed with, with iTunes, and you look at LiveMetallica.com with the download of the shows every night. It would not be that hard to make the money back. I mean, you know, four thousand dollar books, you're not going to sell a lot of, but you do a revenge era, you know, or, or an '80s era evening of Kiss, and you you throw it up on the net for ten bucks, you'll probably sell, you know, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand downloads and make your money back big time yeah I, I agree and you wouldn't have to worry about you know the the physical media or anything else just make it you know an online exclusive and and similar to the metallica thing if you want to burn it well here's a cover for you if you want to uh you know buy it in a different format and pay a little more well why the hell not you know uh, i i think plenty of people would buy it um and if I on studio time because part of the concept would be that you're sort of getting it warts and all. This has not been pro tool to death. This is, yeah. you know, we haven't spent six months in the studio doing it. We've gone in, we recorded it, we threw it out there, you know, and if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, eh, you only spent 10 bucks. Big deal. Yeah, I saw them three years ago here in Spain. And on that tour... They were they actually paired up with a European company that was selling uh, all of those shows online, and you could actually purchase the show uh, while you were there. I didn't purchase it because they were asking close to forty euros for 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 a live bootleg. Which you know, had it have been you know twenty twenty five, you know, I could see doing that, but close to forty. I mean, you're at that point in time that was close to 50 bucks for you know for 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 a live bootleg <laughs> you know i have to admit i bought every one of those shows you did <laughs> i did uh, i i started off by saying i'll buy one or two and then every time a new one became available i, I kept saying how am i gonna live with myself if i don't have madrid 2009 <laughs> right <laughs> go oh how am I going to live without Helsinki 2009? <laughs> I bought them all. I really did. <laughs> and that does not surprise me. I actually only had uh, one last question. Okay. Uh, and this is regarding Bob Ezrin. Yes. Uh, so much is made regarding Bob Ezrin, but why has the band not worked with him again since uh, Revenge? Four albums have come and gone but yet no Bob Ezrin on any of them. I think it's probably just a, a simple question of economics. Uh, I think Bob uh, commands a, um, you know, expensive paycheck. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the way the, the business was afterwards, I don't think uh, they could afford him necessarily. And also, uh, you know, when we got around to the reunion tour, there was no album to be made. Uh, you know, they just went out on tour. Carnival of Souls, they were looking to do the sort of Seattle grunge thing. So they needed Toby Wright because he was the hot producer in that era. Then, you know, you move on to Psycho Circus. And, of course, Bruce Fairburn 
or Fairbairn, depending on how you say it. He was the he was the the guy who was writing hit singles, and uh, they were trying to write hit singles. And then after that, you know, Paul Stanley took over and said, "I'm going to do it my way." Uh, you know, so that's the you know the only reason I think would be economics and also not the type of uh, producer they were wanting. They, they you know for revenge and for destroyer and for the elder, they had something in mind that that was grand with all kinds of orchestration and all kinds of themes and all kinds of, you know, just, well, let's just go with grand. And that's what Bob delivers. I don't think Bob could have done Carnival of Souls. I don't think Bob would have been good for Sonic Boom. And Bob does not necessarily make albums that have singles when it comes to Kiss and Alice Cooper. And so it wouldn't have worked for Psycho Circus, which, you know, ended up being a big bust anyway. So, right. You know, I think that's it. And I and I also think, um, you know, from Bob's side, um, I think he wanted to get away from working, and I don't want to say it in an insulting way, but working with dinosaur bands like Cooper and uh, Kiss in the 90s and early 2000s. I think he got into his own world and, and he wanted to do different artists, different kinds of artists. And so I, right. I think it's I think it was scheduling and money, basically. Good point. Yeah, the and during that period that you just mentioned, the the only real big name band that I can remember that he worked with was Jane's Addiction. Right. Uh, um, Which was different because Jane's Addiction was sort of an anti-Seattle kind of movement, and I think Bob wanted to get away from doing Alice Cooper and Kiss and and Peter Gabriel, and I think he wanted to try something fresh, and for him, Jane's Addiction was fresh. Yeah. You know, even even producers want to re reinvent themselves once in a while. Sure. So you know, and and by the way, Bob turned down my request to do an interview for uh, for this. He was gonna be, huh. he was gonna be part six, but uh, he has told me uh, in the last email that we will do it someday, just not now. So there might be a part six. At some point, huh? At some point, hopefully before Christmas. Is there anyone else that you reached out to that um, that didn't want to uh, discuss the album? Um, you know, I tried to track down uh, Vinnie Vincent, but there's no way to find him. I was hoping to, to, to talk to Gene and or Paul. And, you know, I sent a letter off to management that was uh, summarily ignored. So <laughs> I, I don't get I guess I wasn't necessarily turned down formally but same difference right but yeah, yeah. listen uh, it would be uh, paramount to the whole uh, project to speak to paul stanley especially because i think he would offer the best insight out of anybody and um you know and bob ezrin would would have been great to talk to but you know you can't get everybody but i think getting bruce and eric at least getting two guys who were there uh, who were right. in the band was great, and I think getting Kevin and Dick, who had sort of this hidden backstory that most people didn't know about, was great too. Because as far as I remember, uh, I don't think either one are either mentioned or thanked on the album. So they, they truly were ghost, ghost, ghost musicians, and right. it's fun to hear them uh, speak about it. And it's also fun to to learn stuff about Ainsley Dunbar. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear the demos that exist with that. 
<laughs> I, I'm assuming that if anyone has those demos, it's got to be Gene or Paul. It's probably Gene. He collects absolutely everything. But you know who's another avid collector of all this stuff is Bruce Kulick. When they went ahead and did the box set, a lot of times, like the Eric Carr stuff, you know, they had to go to Bruce to get it. Huh. So, so Bruce, uh, between Bruce and Gene and Paul, uh, yeah, I'm sure they have all that stuff. I wonder what kind of, um, you know, archives uh, Bob Ezrin keeps, but I wouldn't be surprised if um, if Bob has those tapes too. So, so is there a chance of uh, Bruce offering another call that features uh, Ansley Dunsbar, maybe? <laughs> you know, Bruce didn't want to tell me about Ainsley. You know, when if you read the interview, he said, Oh, there was another named drummer. There was two other named drummers, he in fact said. Yeah. And he didn't want to mention them. And, uh, you know, when speaking to Eric, you know, I said, oh, you know, Bruce says there's two uh, drummers in there. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Ainsley Dunsbar, and I don't remember the other guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but that's the one thing I've noticed about Eric is that he's always been very forthright. And when you speak to Tommy or Bruce... They're a little more guarded. They, um, I don't want to say they're scared of Gene or Paul because I don't, I don't think they're scared necessarily, but they're more, they're more the gatekeepers than, than Eric. And maybe they have more to lose as well than Eric because, I mean, if Eric ever gets, you know, dumped by the band, there's 20 other bands at his door the next morning. You know, tr trying to tr trying to secure his services. Absolutely, Eric. Eric has them lined up around the block, and he's also been in the band so long that to get a fourth drummer might actually go over a lot worse than, get, than getting a fourth or fifth guitarist. You know, so that's another consideration. But yeah, I mean, listen, he can run off with Brian May. He can run off with Black Sabbath. He can, I mean, he can run off with a lot of people, you know, or even yeah. his own super group. And um, I'm not sure the same applies for some of the other guys. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was getting at. Not to diminish what Tommy or Bruce have done, no. but the fact of the matter is uh, Eric has played with so many people, has such a laundry list of... Uh, um, you know, projects or bands that he's worked with. And, you know, I've, I've seen him live with Kiss. I mean, flat out, he blows any other drummer that they've had, regardless what emotional attachment you have to them or not. He's flat out the best drummer they've had. Yeah, I mean, listen, he's the only member of Kiss, when you think about it, that has played with Alice Cooper, members of Queen, and Black Sabbath. Yeah. He's essentially played with the royalty. I mean, the only thing that he that he's missing is maybe a spot with, uh, you know, Metallica and and a sejour with Aerosmith, and <laughs> he'd have all the big names covered. Give him time. <laughs> but if Gene or Paul make that call and say, "Don't show up for work," I'm I'm sure he might be uh, Ozzy's next drummer within a heartbeat. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me at all. No, honestly, he's 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 really the best drummer. You know, when um, had, ha having seen Kiss through the '80s and then uh, that Revenge show that came to town in uh, 
92, I guess it was, October. And all of a sudden, they're playing Parasite, and they're playing I Stole Your Love, and they're playing the new stuff, and 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 the double bass drum, and I mean, he was phenomenal. I mean, he he took Kiss drumming to the next level. Yeah, and um, you know he, he's as much he's as much a member of the band as Gene or Paul is at this point. I mean, he's the third longest. Right, and aside from that, I mean, he's always discussed that he was a fan before joining the band, and I think that accounts for a lot as well. I think that's why Tommy has an edge as well, um, is that he was a, a very big fan of the band before actually getting involved and getting up there and playing. I think there's more of an emotional attachment for both of them to make sure that, you know, it isn't just a paycheck, that it's, you know, that they're really living a dream that they had as a kid. Well, yeah, and I mean, let's not forget, Tommy played in a cover band called Cold Gin, and he was ace for, you know, 10 years before he ever got involved with Kiss. So, right. you know, he's got that, that connection. And um, and both of them are, are very loyal guys. I mean, you know, they, they, you know, they, they do exactly what they need to do with Gene and Paul. Right. Yeah, I've, I've also um, ne- never bought, and this is something that you brought up when you talk to Eric. I've never bought the whole concept of, oh, well, you know, these guys are scabs or, you know, whatever. Uh, The exact thing that you said, and and I actually discussed this with Gary Sharon years ago at at a KISS convention. He was promoting a a new project that he had at the time, and he had been interviewed the night before on a radio station. And I said, you know, that I understood 100% everything that he had discussed about uh, why he joined Van Halen and he flat out said he said look no one turns that job down if you were ever a fan of the band and this is no different for for Eric Singer in this case if Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley come up to you and say hey uh, we want you to be the drummer we want you to put Peter's makeup on uh, no one no one absolutely no one says no <laughs> oh, and uh, Eric has said this uh, a lot of times also, is that if he didn't do it, and if he didn't put the makeup on, somebody else would, and right. I'll be him. And he's absolutely right. I mean, he could have said, no, I'm not putting on the makeup, and guess what? The week after, it would have been Ainsley Dunsbar, the cat man. Or... <laughs> yes. Or, or any of them. Right. Charlie Benente, any of them. They They, they would do it. Yeah. Yeah, and and the thing is, I mean, it's difficult enough to to make a living, you know, uh, as a musician. You get that opportunity. Again, you're a kid growing up and you're a fan of a band. Uh, They're willing to offer you the the dream spot, per se. And you're going to make enough money that, you know, you're not going to have to look for side things to do, which, you know, a good percentage of musicians out there have to do. And you're playing all these arenas and, you know, festivals and whatnot. I mean, there aren't too many people that are going to turn that down. No. I mean, you look, look at look at a guy like Nuno Betancourt, one of the greatest guitarists known to man. And he's now just, you know, the behind the scenes guy for Rihanna. Yeah. You know, and, and, and if Eric Singer hadn't put on the makeup, 
Well, that's what he'd be doing. He'd be, you know, Nelly Furtado's drummer that nobody would know. So, yeah, you know, you might as well uh, be part of a band and be part of something big with your own personality than to be this working stiff musician that has to go from gig to gig to gig. And if, you know, Rihanna decides not to tour while poor Nuno's stuck at home, and, you know, Eric didn't want to do that. And, you know, good for him for joining KISS. And, yeah. God, I hope he stays forever because he, he's the best drummer. Absolutely. Bruce come back, I got to say. What's that? I'd like to see Bruce come back. I have absolutely nothing against Tommy. I think Tommy's great. I think he's a great guy. But, you know, if you can't have reunited KISS, then we should at least have had revenge KISS. And, you know, I'm sure... Push comes to shove. Bruce would have thrown on whatever makeup he needed to throw on too, and but I think he should have been invited. It it would have made perfect sense to me. Well, um, that's one thing that I actually asked him, and he said that he was glad that he was never put in the position to um, choose to have to put the makeup on or not, which to me seemed to seemed to mean. I would have put the makeup on had they have said, okay, Bruce, come back, but you have to do this. Of course. I mean, he, he, listen, he would have been silly not to. It would not have made sense for him to walk away from the Kiss gig uh, because of makeup and then, you know, to go play with Grand Funk or whoever else. It, you know, it wouldn't have made sense. And, and if you look contextually or, or back in time, he would have said no to the makeup to go play with Union. Come on. That's not even a serious, you know, <laughs> so, so let's, it would be nice to have Bruce back. If not for forever, then, you know, a few shows, uh, the, the Kiss Cruise, uh, something. Yeah. Bastard child who was thrown out and he, and he did nothing. <laughs> he, he did nothing wrong. I mean, he played on, on Paul's last solo album. He did some bass. He, he did some bass on Psycho Circus. He, he, uh, you know, Gene Simmons was on his BK3 album. So obviously yeah. he did nothing wrong. The relationship's good, but, you know, he's a band. Yeah, and actually I have to say that the track that he did on BK3, I think, is better than any of the tracks that he did on Sonic Boom. Gene, yeah, absolutely. Uh, or the Sweet, no, it's not Sweet and Dirty Love. It's um, Ain't, what was that called again? Ain't Gonna Die, some of that? Yeah, I believe that's the title. Great track. Great. Yeah. I mean, it, it really rocked, actually. And, um, yeah, anyway, Gene. Uh, in the uh, Eric interview, uh, Eric mentioned that Gene had enough material for another solo album. And, um, wow, that made me cringe. Yeah, the the only thing off of that last solo album he put out that was even remotely decent, in my opinion, is the Japanese bonus track that didn't even make it on the U.S. copy. Well, yeah, yeah, the Japanese track was great, but the uh, I like the I think it was the first or second track, "Sweet and Dirty Love." That was really good. Right. That featured Bruce and Eric, so it was essentially a Kiss song. Right. But um, if Gene is to make another solo album and, you know, put another collection of 12 completely incoherent, inconsistent, you know, unfinished songs like he did on uh, on A-Hole, oh, we're, we're in for... 
I mean, we'll copy it, but I hate to throw $20 on something that I know I'm not going to listen to. But Right. Yeah, it's going to be a, <laughs> a one-time listen, and uh, it'll, it'll be in the corner collecting dust. I'm not even sure I listened to A-Hole all the way through. I think I listened to like 30 seconds to a minute of each track and just went, oh, what is this? <laughs> I mean, and his video for Firestarter could be one of the worst videos ever made. I got a body built for sin and an appetite for passion.
I just wanna. That is that's the next to last song off of Revenge. Um, played the last song at the end of the previous episode, Car Jam '81. Sort of controversial because you know that track originally had Ace Freely on it, and he helped write it with Eric Carr. Uh, I just wanna track that Mitch Lafon said. The band should bring back and play live. And, you know, it is a shame that the band has pretty much panned, you know, everything post-Creatures. Well, I shouldn't say post-Creatures of the Night because they play Lick It Up. So they pan everything, you know, uh, post-Lick It Up. So that's 83 all the way up to, uh, you know, um Psycho Circus, so that's 96. There's, what, 13 years that uh, that pretty much no longer exists for the band? You know, um, sort of a shame. But it is what it is. It is the nuttiness that is Kiss and that keeps us as fans discussing them and bitching about them and buying stuff from them and, you know, so on and so forth. So thanks again for... Mitch Lafon for him coming on and discussing this album with me. Uh, thanks to you, the listeners. And remember, if you want to contribute to MarsAttacksRadio.com, just drop me a line at input at MarsAttacksRadio, and uh, we'll take it from there. Uh, that's pretty much it for this week's episode, or for this podcast. I shouldn't say this week because I'd like to do things on a weekly basis, but... You just never know how it's going to work out. So, um, thanks for listening, and we're going to leave you with the track Tough Love by Kiss. And this will put an end to the Revenge special. See you next time right here on the Mars Attacks podcast. (laughs) 